Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome back to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. I'm Helen Westmoreland. And I'm LaWanda Tony, and we're your co-hosts. We are excited to be back and back to school, whatever that means for you, bringing you season three of Notes from the Backpack. And we wanted to start off this season with an important and timely topic. After a summer filled with continued protests for racial justice and support for the Black Lives Matter movement, families are having conversations about racism, justice, bias, and prejudice with their kids. These are heavy topics, and parents don't always know where to start. But one place we suggest is starting with your kid's bookshelf. Today, we're going to talk about diversity in children's literature and how we can ensure the books we're reading to our kids introduce them to all kinds of people. People of different races, religions, sexual orientations, genders, and cultures. That's right, Luanda. And something I learned as we were preparing for today is that about half of kids' books feature white characters and more than a quarter feature animals. But only 10% of kids' books feature Black or African-American characters, and only 5% feature Latinx characters. And this is a problem because representation matters. All kids deserve to see themselves in books, and books should introduce our kids to the rich diversity of our world. That's why we're so glad to have the incredible author Kwame Alexander on our show today. Kwame Alexander is the New York Times bestselling author of 37 books, including the Caldecott Medal and Newbery Honor-winning picture book, The Undefeated, illustrated by Kadir Nelson, and his Newbery Medal-winning middle school novel, The Crossover. He's currently working on a new book, Becoming Muhammad Ali, which he's writing with James Patterson. As the host of a new kids' television program, Wordplay, and founding editor of Versify, an imprint of Hofflin Mifflin Harcourt, Kwame aims to change the world one word at a time. He's also a husband and father of two daughters. In addition to all that, Kwame is my friend, and I'm so happy that we get to speak with him today. Welcome, Kwame. Thanks so much for joining us today. Woohoo! It's so good to be here. And for those of y'all listening, I have never met LaWanda in my life. <laughs> okay, then maybe we aren't friends. <laughs> okay, okay. We're the best of friends, and I'm so honored to be on your awesome podcast with Helen. Great. We're happy, happy, happy to have you. So let's jump into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how'd you become a writer? Oh my gosh. I could talk for an hour on that question. I hope you got a lot of time because here we go. (laughs) So I've written 37 books. I started writing when I was 12 years old. I wrote a really bad poem for my mother on Mother's Day. Oh. <laughs> it was really bad. The first couple lines were, Dear Mommy, I hate Mother's Day. So <laughs> it didn't go too well. But I kind of redeemed myself towards the end, I said, because every day is Mother's Day in my heart. And she cried. And I was like, whoa, words are kind of powerful. They can really elicit emotions. And I figured this out at 12 years old. And I think I just kept writing from there. 
And then I got to college and I had Nikki Giovanni as a professor. And then I decided maybe this is going to be more than a hobby. I can actually have a job of writing. And then it took me 23 years of figuring out how to make a living from it. And along that journey, I wrote plays, poems, stories, novels. I even wrote a movie script. And I just fell in love with writing. And now I'm fortunate that it is my job. I wake up every morning. I write for like three or four hours. I go for a walk in the park. I listen to music, play softball with my daughter. Like I have this writerly life that I've dreamed my entire life of having. And it feels really good. I want to learn a little bit more from you, Kwame, about the process you use to develop some of your characters. I shared with you at the top before we started recording, we've been reading a lot of Acoustic Rooster in my house with my two-year-old. I know that the book might be a little old for her, but she loves it. And so I'm just curious, what's your process to think of, like, I'm going to write a story about this rooster starting a jazz band with the barnyard animals. What inspires you and gets you going on that? For each book, it's different. I will preface it by saying I'm a willing participant in life. I walk through life just being actively involved, paying attention, eavesdropping, interacting, hanging out, just trying to say yes to what's possible in my life because I only got one shot at this. And so as a result of that, of being intimate with the world, I pay attention to everything. And so that is my inspiration. In particular, I was in a place called Tuscany in a small town called Ortimino in 2010. I was staying in a villa with nine other writers. And every morning we'd wake up and we'd walk to the local cafe down this long gravel road to get croissants and tea. And each morning I'd pass by this chicken coop. And in this coop <laughs> were these yeah, it was real. These chickens, these hens, and these roosters were running around, and it was almost like they were dancing. And I was like, that's pretty cool. They look like they're dancing. And then my mind just went to this place. Well, if they're dancing, naturally, there's got to be music. And if there's music and they're in a barnyard, then maybe these hens and roosters are listening to jazz. And if they're listening <laughs> to jazz, then it's got to be a live band because DJs don't play jazz. And if it's a live band, well, who is in the band? <laughs> you see how kooky a writer's mind works? We're just out there. We're taking in everything. And so that led to me coming up with the characters Duck Ellington and Mules Davis. And then I just wrote the book during that three-week stint in Tuscany. So, Kwame, let's talk a little bit more about your writing style because you write your novels in prose, and that's a little different than most authors. Why is that so important to you? Well, to be completely semantically correct, I write my novels in poetry, in verse. Oh, and a lot right. of people tend to combine or confuse prose with poetry because prose sounds so poetic. Just the word itself, the way it rolls off your tongue. <laughs> and the idea is that when I'm writing my novels in poems, as it were, that you forget that you're reading poetry. That you forget because your eyes mm -hmm. and your mind and our imaginations, we're used to reading novels in prose, in traditional prose. And if I'm writing my novels in poetry and I'm doing a really good job, Lawanda, then by page five or six, you forget that it's poetry and you're just into the story, into the beginning 
the middle and the end. So why do I choose to write novels and poems? I think poems are direct. I think they're concise. I think they can talk about really heavy things in a manner that makes it digestible and palatable for us as readers, especially kids, especially kids who teachers and librarians and parents don't think want to read because they think they're reluctant readers. I think poetry is immediate. I think it's emotional. I think it's a great way to tell a story and it's the best way that I know how to do it. I think that so often as it relates to our boys, and my teacher said this about me, boys don't read or Kwame was a reluctant Mm. reader. And I just disagree with that. Nobody ever gave me books that I was interested in. It wasn't that I was reluctant. Mm. I wasn't interested. And I believe that you can create some really engaging and interesting stories that are not intimidating to the eye through poems, telling stories through poems. And that's what I choose to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a more beautiful read in some ways to read in poetry. You can feel it in a different way. You Mm -hmm. mentioned that in school you were called a reluctant reader and how important it is for kids to have some choice and have something that grabs their attention, whether it's the style of writing or part of what we're talking about today is who the characters are, right, and culturally who they speak to. Could you share with us a little bit about your experience in philosophy and why you think it's important for families to be reading books with their kids that feature more diverse characters? Well, I don't like that word, Helen. I mean, Mm. more diverse characters. What does that mean? Let's really get deep into it if you want to, because does it mean white kids need to be reading books with black characters? Because it doesn't mean black kids need to be reading books with white characters because black kids have been doing that for the past 400 years. That's right. So let's reframe the question. Let's say, do we need to have books in our classrooms? Do we need to have books on the shelves in our kids' bedrooms? Do we need to have books on our Kindles that reflect the kind of world we actually live in and reflect the kind of world we claim we want for our children to inherit? The answer is a resounding yes. So that means the Mm -hmm. books that we give our kids They have to be, as Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop says, the books have to be mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And so we got to be able to see ourselves in the books. We got to be able to see each other in the books. And we got to be able to see the relationship between the two of us in the books. The books got to reflect the kind of world we claim we want for our kids. My daughter, she has a really cool best friend. She's 12 now, who she's known since she was three. I remember going over to take her to a play date. And I was in the little girl's room dropping my daughter off. And I looked in the girl's bookshelf. And the girl, by the way, was white. And my daughter's black. And on her bookshelf, out of about 40 or 50 titles, children's picture books, only one of them featured a character that looked like my daughter. Just one. Mm. And that was a book that I had written and I gave them. And so we got to really understand that if we want our kids to be empathetic, If we want them to connect more with children from various backgrounds and cultures and communities, if we want our children to embrace their full humanity and embrace the full humanity of their friends and their associates and their colleagues and their lovers and the people they work with at work when they become adults, then we've got to make sure that the books that they have as children set them up for that, prepare them for that. 
The mind of an adult begins in the imagination of a kid. So what kind of adult Mm. are you creating now? I do appreciate your reframing because I think the reality is it's not hard to find books with white characters. And if you just were to go about your world of the most popular, quote unquote, books in mainstream America, it would be very hard to find books with black and brown characters specifically. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the resources that are out there for parents who do want to be sure that their kids can see those other children and those other families and experiences in their literature? I would say I don't agree that the books are hard to find. Mm. So I would start there. I would say that the books are easy to find. Are you looking for them? Because you got to think, Yeah. In our minds, we haven't been looking for those books. Like I remember when I was growing up in middle and high school, you would not see a white kid walking around school with a book by Walter Dean Myers or a book by Langston Hughes. You wouldn't see that. Mm -hmm. But I would be walking around school with Tuck Everlasting and Bridge to Terabithia. But those books are there. They're in the libraries. They're in the bookstores. But are we looking for them? So the books don't segregate themselves, Helen and Lawanda. We do as the adults. I wrote a book about two frogs. It's called Surf's Up. It's about two frogs who are going to the beach to go surfing. But one frog is reading Moby Dick. So he doesn't want to get up off his couch. And the other frog is a little pissed. And it's a really fun book. And I was signing books at a conference in Milwaukee and this librarian came up to me and she said, Kwame, I have black kids in my school and I have white kids in my school. And before I teach this book, I need to know which group of kids I can teach it to. So I need you to tell me what color your frogs are. Oh. I was like, huh? Yeah, I need to know what color your frogs are. And I just looked at her and I was like, your question is much more interesting than any answer I could ever offer you. And I remember Mm -hmm. when I got home, I said to my kid, who was maybe eight or nine at the time, I said, Samaya, just curious, what color do you think dad's frogs are? And she's like, duh, they're green. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. But see, our minds are so brainwashed and conducive to segregating the literature that we don't understand Mm. that the kids aren't the problem, the books aren't the problem, it's us. And we got to do a much Mm. better job of providing all the books for all the kids so that they can become better human beings than we are. Mm. I love that. So Kwame, the other day I was talking to my friends and preparing for this podcast and I asked them, when was the first time you read a book that the main character resonated with you, either looked like you or you had an experience where you like, I get that character. And a lot of us, it wasn't until high school. Do you remember your first experience with a character? You're like, yeah, I get that. I didn't encounter my first book with characters who were Black or from communities that I felt connected to in school until maybe I was in college. Mm -hmm. Mm. However, my first encounter with books that featured characters that looked and lived and laughed like me was when I was two or three years old. 
because my parents were my first teachers and librarians. So I had Everett Anderson's mm. Adventures by Lucille Clifton, which was about this little boy, this little black kid. It was about his adventures in his neighborhood. I had that at age two or three. I had, and the sun guy said, that's hip by Ernest Gregg about this community of black people trying to get to the sun by age four. I had Nikki Giovanni spin a soft black song at age two. I had Abby about this little black boy whose mom and dad come home one day and said, guess what? You have a sister. And he's like, wait a minute. How'd that happen? Well, we adopted her. And he's like, no, I don't want her. I don't want no sister. He wants her to be a boy. So he tries to teach her to be a boy by doing, quote, boy things. And by the end of the book, she's taught him how to be a girl, as it were, to play with dolls and do things. And so they developed this loving relationship. I had that at age four or five. I mean, my bookshelves were filled with books. So schools weren't doing their jobs, but my parents were. And that's what I want to encourage. I think Helen brought this up Mm -hmm. earlier. It is so important for parents to make sure that the books on their shelves reflect the kind of world they claim they want that are going to lift their kids up and for parents to read those books with the kids and have these nightly read-alouds and build this fun, inspiring experience around the pages of a book. So I had that from the time I was born. You're very fortunate. That's great. And I hope that this encourages other parents to start thinking in the same way, to provide them those mirrors that we talk so wonderfully about. Yeah, absolutely. I want to hear a little bit about Kwame Versify imprint. Could you tell us what that is and why that's important? Yeah. So I had the opportunity about three and a half years ago to start my own publishing company again. And I say again, because as Lawanda knows, I had my own publishing company back in the 1990s, early 2000s. And after 10 years in 2005, I had to shut it down because I just wasn't making any money. And I wanted to publish really high quality literature that people weren't interested in necessarily. And so I always said, maybe one day I'll get a chance to do it again. So after the success of my first novel, The Crossover, my publisher approached me in 2017 and said, Kwame, do you want to start a publishing company? And I said, yes. And of course, this time around, my publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, they were going to fund it. They were going to provide all of the back end. Hmm. And so it was a win-win situation. I've always looked at the publishing industry as this dinner party. And there are 10 chairs at the table. And seven of the chairs have been occupied by the same people day in and day out. And they're enjoying the meals, having great champagne and enjoying each other's company and doing some good stuff. But three of those chairs have been empty. And every now and then they'll let a special guest come to the party. I wanted to create a company where I filled those chairs up. I made sure that those Mm -hmm. meals were going to represent the world, represent the community. And it was going to be great literature. And it wasn't just going to be limited to the friends of those seven people. But we were going to open this thing up. Mm -hmm. And so we created Versify in 2017. We're in year three now. We do four to seven books a year. Our first four books, Vamos by Raul III, Last Last Day of Summer by Lamar Giles, White Rose by Kip Wilson, and The Undefeated by myself and illustrated by Kadir Nelson. Those were our first four books that came out in the spring of 2019. And all four of them won major awards from the American Library Association. So it was a great start. 
Congratulations. Well, and it sounds like for me and other parents listening that want to build their library, like you said, to be mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors, Versify could be a first place to go to look at that. Absolutely. Definitely. Go to your local independent bookstore. I don't know if people can go to bookstores right now, but you can order online. (laughs) (laughs) Kwame, I wanted to ask you a question about kids and being able to write their own story. We know that an important aspect of literature is not just reading, but the ability to write your own story. How do parents encourage their children to write? Wow, that's a great question. When kids read books that are interesting and engaging and inspiring and empowering, they naturally will want to write. I think it's how do you create activities and prompts for students to extend that reading experience. I think there Mm -hmm. are a number of wonderful books out there on that topic that parents can share with their young readers. There's a book by Jack Gantos. I think it's called The Writing Radar. I have a book coming out in the fall. It's called Kwame Alexander's Free Write Journal. And then one of the things I used to do when my daughter would have play dates when she was much younger, the girls would come over to the house and I would say, all right, before we get into the pool, before we play basketball, before we play pool, whatever, there's a haiku scavenger hunt happening. So you all got 30 minutes. (laughs) You got to go around this house and find these. And I'd leave adjectives. I'd leave verbs. I'd leave nouns on pieces of paper and I'd hide them. And you got to go find one of each. Then you got to write a haiku. And everybody meet back in my office in 30 minutes. And I just made it a fun activity. And I think if we can make writing and reading cool, which, of course, to me, it is. It's always been. I think our kids are going to be more appreciative and more engaged in it. So we aren't doing haiku scavenger hunts, but we did start. (laughs) We did start a book club this summer with Caleb and his cousins. So the age ranges are eight to like 12. We meet on Saturday mornings on Zoom. And they have to read a couple pages during the week. We assign the number and then we just let them go talk about it. And it is the most interesting conversations where they go. We start off with the book, of course, but how they process things and how they think about it. They have not complained once either. I'm like, who are these kids? This is wonderful. Okay, so hold up. That's brilliant, number one. But number two, Caleb is eight. (laughs) (laughs) Caleb will actually be eight in November, but yes, he's getting there. It's crazy. What? Oh my gosh. (laughs) But I think that's such a good idea. So many parents could do that, Luana, like a little virtual book club. And they could use some of the books we've talked about today. I love that. Well, Kwame, before we go, I want to be sure you can tell our listeners a little bit about what you've got coming next. Tell us about Becoming Muhammad Ali or any other projects that you've got coming up that you want to be sure parents know about. Yeah. So I wrote this novel with James Patterson. You all ever heard of him? (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) So Jim and I wrote this novel called Becoming Muhammad Ali, and it was sanctioned by the Ali estate. So Lonnie Ali, Muhammad Ali's wife, And Jim and I had a meeting. And then Lonnie gave me access to the Muhammad Ali archives, which has these amazing oral history tapes that have never been released to the public of interviews with 
Ali's best friends growing up when he was known as Cassius Clay. I listened to all these tapes, and we ended up writing a book about Cassius Clay from primarily his middle and high school years that nobody really knows about. And I think it's the best thing I've ever written. I'm really excited about the story. It comes out October the 5th. We'll be doing a little virtual tour. It's got illustrations in it, but it's a novel and it's a coming of age tale about how Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali. That is so exciting. And I'll definitely be adding it to our book club list. Yay. So good. (laughs) So Kwame, out of everything we discussed, what is one thing families should walk away with from today's episode, you think? The mind of an adult begins in the imagination of a kid. If you want to create Mm, beautiful human beings, you want to create adults who become teachers, who care about all their kids. You want to create adults who become police officers, who have an imagination that sees beyond stereotypes, prejudice, and discriminations. If you want to create human beings who are empathetic and loving and caring, it starts now. Give them the books that will help shape and mold their minds to become beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing so much with us today. Okay, so let's talk about your social. So what are your social media handles and where can listeners go to learn more about you and all your work? Well, this has been great. I got to tell you, even though I haven't seen you in a minute, it feels like it was yesterday that you and I were hanging out. So... It's good to be with you. And it's so good to meet you, Helen. And I'm honored to be guest number one for the season three. In the meantime, in between time, y'all can find me at Kwame Alexander on Twitter, Instagram, Kwame Alexander Books on Facebook. I'm everywhere and anywhere and hope to see you all out in the digital world. And when things get back to normal, hope to see you at your school or your library, but certainly on your shelves. Thanks again, Kwame, for this awesome conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And to our audience listening, thank you for joining us. For more resources related to today's episode, check out notesfromthebackpack.com. And we want to extend a very special thank you to our sponsor for season three of Notes from the Backpack, the Carnegie Corporation of New York, for supporting season three of Notes from the Backpack. Before we go, we want to let you know that it's National PTA's Back to School Week. We know that back to school season is far from normal this year, and we're here to help. Visit pta.org slash back to school for all kinds of resources to support you and your family during the start of the new year. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.